Welcome to Finance Lab, a podcast for the intellectual investor, powered by Dalbar, an independent financial research firm dedicated to improving the investor experience. Finance Lab is where real investors get practical insight and perspective from real experts. In each episode, we'll dive deep into the fascinating world of finance, exploring topics like investing, financial planning, market trends, and everything in between. We're here to empower you with the tools and knowledge necessary to make informed financial decisions. Hello, and welcome to Finance Lab. I'm your host, Corey Clark, Chief Marketing Officer at Dalbar. The title of today's show is Six Major Wealth Destroyers and How to Avoid Them. Now, often when discussing investing, we talk a lot about acts of commission, steps that you must take, assets you must own, or products you must consider. But there's more to investment success than the accumulation of correct decisions one after the other. And in many cases, particularly in finance, success can be more about avoiding the negative and avoiding the disastrous than it is about hitting it out of the ballpark in every decision that you make. Our guest today is Leslie Batson. Leslie is the founder and chief wealth strategist at Rebel Rock Wealth. It's a boutique wealth strategy firm for independent thinkers. She's a financial professional, trusted advisor, and inspiring speaker who is disrupting the herd mentality around personal and business finance. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today on Finance Lab. Thanks for having me, Corey. Glad to be here. So in your writings and in your practice, you focus on helping clients avoid certain actions that can destroy their wealth. I know when we were talking before the show, you mentioned six wealth destroyers, and you know some of these are pretty sneaky. Would you share with our audience what these six wealth destroyers are? Absolutely, absolutely. I think there are things that people need to think about before they just want to jump into an investment or something like that. The first is what I call knowledge or mindset or belief. So that family or that category is where I have people think about what is their history with money? How was money discussed in the household when they were growing up? Did they maybe have a comfortable childhood, but then at some point things changed and they didn't have access to it? Did they have any type of financial education in class, even if it was just balancing a checkbook or not? You know, has their education simply come from watching commercials, which honestly is how a lot of people learn about what to do with their money is through commercials or watching cable news or from their HR department. So it's really one of those things to think about, like, do you have a good, reliable source that you can turn to, to learn about the different facets of money so that you can make, you know, informed decisions? And a lot of people are are emotional when it comes to making financial decisions. So you don't necessarily want to be relying on that. You want to you know, make well-informed decisions when it comes to your money. And I suppose knowing a little bit more about or thinking about oneself and your history with money might help to identify where those mistakes may come from or where your misconceptions may come from. But you sort of have to know thyself first, right? Absolutely. You know, I think we all have different personalities. Some people love to spend, some people like to hoard, right? So mm-hmm. What are your beliefs around things? What are your behaviors with money? And when we better understand that, and also what are our our risk tolerance levels, right? So once we kind of understand all those different things, it can protect us from doing things that could erode our wealth over time. So that was not necessarily the first thing that I was expecting. 
to know oneself, but it really makes so much sense on the ground floor before you go, because I know we have five more that we're going to talk about, but was it on purpose that this was the first one? Is it, do you find <laughs> this to be the, the most important? I do. And I know it's probably, like you said, unexpected, but I think yeah. it's always about mindset, no matter what you're, you're doing, what is your approach and what do you understand? That's at the foundation. If you're starting off with the wrong information or not complete information, you're kind of one step back. So I like to help people understand their mindset around money and build their confidence around it and point them to quality resources so that they can get the information that they need, unbiased information. And that's got to be helpful in establishing a goal as well. I mean, I don't know thyself to go back to that same phrase, then it could be hard to understand what one's goal should be. And, and as you mentioned, you know, some, some are spenders, some are savers, every, you know, everyone's different and everyone's goals should you know, probably be adjusted based on that. So I'm cheating here in a way because I know what these wealth destroyers are because we, we chatted before the show. And so I can say that the first two both surprised me. So we talked about knowledge, mindset, and wealth. But uh, Leslie, could you talk a little bit about this, this second one that I think also falls into the category of, yeah, I never would have thought of that first, but once you say it, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world that that's something I should be thinking about first. <laughs> now that I've teased everybody, what is that second one? <laughs> that second wealth destroyer? Yes, well, the second one is health. So this could be your physical health. It could be your spiritual health you know, but your health in general. And the reason why I like to focus on that is because 65 is still, for some reason, in this day and age, thought of to be the year age of retirement. And that was an age set way 100 years ago when people didn't tend to live too much longer beyond that. And now, you know, the average age is 87 in the United States. So people are still thinking of retiring at age 65 but they could be living to be 80, 90, even 100 years old. And so we have to think about health and what it could cost to sustain your life or to sustain the lifestyle that you want, you know, for that extended period of time. So usually we want to think about when we're healthy, do we have certain protections in place? Maybe that's life insurance, maybe it's income protection or what might be known as disability insurance. We want to understand what types of things we need to have in place to make sure that our wealth isn't going to be whittled away in our later years or throughout our lifetime if our income is interrupted. We want to make sure that our income doesn't get interrupted or our ability for our wealth to grow doesn't get interrupted because of health events that can occur. And also, I think, because it would be great if we're healthy and we live longer, but if we aren't healthy, how does that impact our family? If we do have to stop working you know, how do we make sure that our family is able to continue the lifestyle that we want? So we want to make sure we understand how important it is to maintain good health, but also what can we do to make sure that if we experience a negative health event, that it doesn't completely erode or destroy our wealth. We know that medical bills is one of the, is the number one reason for bankruptcy in this country. And some of that stuff can be prevented um, just having the right knowledge <laughs> up front. And Leslie, do you feel that the average investor is appropriately bringing together their wealth and health considerations into one you know, practical plan? Or do you feel today that those tend to be more siloed? They are absolutely more siloed. I think if someone is working with a financial advisor or a financial planner who 
is doing a comprehensive strategy for them, they are going to help them see that. But a lot of cases, people are working with a money manager or a stockbroker, and they're just focused on the investments. They're not thinking about how the other parts of your life can impact your ability to grow wealth or build wealth. And you really need to look at both. Vince Dodona is a, a mentor of mine, and he has something called Parallel Paths. And he talks about there are two paths that we're all on, the protection path and the wealth accumulation path. And we need to make sure that as we're you know, building wealth over time, that we also have protections in place over time. Because no one is guaranteed to have that perfect compound curve. <laughs> no one's guaranteed to, to earn that. There's a lot of things that can interrupt that curve. And so that's what I really like to do with my clients is make sure they're thinking about these things along with the things that are exciting to them with, you know, in the market and, <laughs> and other investments that they're doing. Okay. So we've talked about knowledge, mindset, belief, sort of fusing together the idea of your wealth and your health and, and how those considerations sort of flow to a lot of the considerations you may have with the financial planning. And I know at least there were six wealth destroyers. What are some of the other ones that, that you work with your clients on? Sure. So this next one is probably one that you'd most be expecting, <laughs> but taxes, right? So uh, yeah. taxes, there are so many different types of taxes that we are impacted by. We always default and think of, say, state income tax and federal income tax, but there are others, right? There's property taxes, there's gas tax, get your cell phone bill, you've got all those taxes on there. You go stay at a beautiful hotel, you've got resort taxes on there. I mean, there's so many things that different types of taxes on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, whittle away what we've earned and what we are able to keep. So we always want to be mindful of, you know, the tax consequence. And obviously the higher, you know, income that you earn or situation that you find yourself in, you want to make sure that you have strategies in place to be able to minimize or let's say optimize the amount of taxes that you pay. And oftentimes I find that people are very interested or curious about things you know, maybe a little bit of FOMO, they hear about something you want to take advantage of it, but they don't always understand the tax consequence to it. And we always want to understand how taxes are going to impact whatever decision we make, because that's going to affect how much we get to keep. Absolutely. I mean, I, I knew taxes would have to be on this list somewhere, <laughs> but it, it's a bit refreshing that we had some that were more introspective to the investor. And before we got to some of these uh, these dirty words like tax, and, and we got another dirty word coming up, which is fees. I know that's uh, one of the ones, I don't know if it was the next one you were planning to talk about, but I feel yes. uh, very related to taxes. So <laughs> I know that fees is definitely a potential wealth destroyer. Everybody knows that. What do you tell uh, your clients and what is your perspective on fees and how they fit into the into the equation? Yeah. Well, how I feel is nobody's going to work for free. I don't work for free. So it's not that you are trying to find someone who doesn't ever charge any fees. You just need to understand what is the cost or what is it costing you for that particular decision or to invest in that particular fund or in that particular account. Understand what are the fees, the expenses, the charges. Are they one-time fees? Are they perpetual fees? You know, a 1% annual fee can erode your wealth by, you know, 10% over time. So you, you just want to understand what is that fee costing you and what, what's the value for that fee? If that fee is mm -hmm. being charged by an advisor, I mean, are you getting a value for that? If not, maybe you should be thinking twice about using them, right? So 
It's really just about understanding what the costs are because those, again, will erode the growth of your money over time. And sometimes we're oblivious to it because we might see a statement, it's already net of the fees. So we didn't even realize what was already taken from our pocket, (laughs) right? Because the statement is already showing us the amount with the fees taken out. So a lot of us are oblivious to it. And it's just one of the things I try to make sure that they understand what is this particular decision costing you? Do you want to move forward with it? Yes or no? Here are some alternatives, you know, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that with the fees. We did research a few years back and I've I've read other pieces of research that corroborate the, the same notion is that a lot of investors believe they're not paying any fees in certain yes. <laughs> cases because Absolutely. you know it's embedded into the the NAV of the of the investment and they're they're unaware of sort of what's going on behind the scenes you know not that that's like you said no, you know don't expect anyone to work for free there there should be fees you're getting value in return but it can be difficult to assess that and understand if you don't even know that they exist and you don't even know what they are so uh, but I, but the end I think the industry has has gotten better it still has a way ways to go there but I think fees have been a bit more transparent but that you know certainly one of the the big uh, focal points of, of the SEC and other regulators as well. I, I know yeah. myself paying two, and this isn't a fee, but it sort of feels like a fee when you pay two two Netflix subscriptions because I forgot about <laughs> one. You know, I could consider that that second Netflix subscription a tax or a fee because I'm getting. Yeah, it's true in a way. It is. Well, you know, I love the Dalbar QAIB report. I think it is QAIB. Yeah, I love that, and I share that with my clients because. I want them to understand that, yes, I know that you keep reading or you keep seeing and you keep hearing reported that S&P, it averages whatever it is, 10% a year, you know, over the course of 30 years, but the investors are not necessarily earning that. And, mm-hmm. and that's not all due to fees. Some of that is just like, as indicated in the report, the investor behavior, but there's this assumption that I'm going to earn the same as what the index is earning. And that's just mm. not just not accurate. So that kind of education, that's what I call sort of like the fundamentals, right? They need to kind of understand those fundamentals and take those into consideration when they're making, you know, investment decisions. Yeah, that's a great point because you know, similar to what I was saying with fees, the, the difference between your investment returns and the personal rate of return was really something that the average investor didn't understand and didn't really grasp. You know, if you rewind maybe... 20 years ago or so where more investors may have been getting a statement that was just a single mutual fund that they owned you know, directly through the mutual fund company. And so mm-hmm. it makes it even more jarring when you're invested in one fund and the fund in one spot in the in the statement, it says the fund at this rate of return. And then in a different page, it says this was with your rate of return. But wait, I'm only invested in this one fund. Why is it different? Yeah. That was really the genesis of, of Quaid because firms were coming to us to say, clients don't understand this difference and they're coming to us and we don't know how to explain it to them. Yeah. And that was sort of how Quaid came about. But we've come a long way in, in being more transparent in these ways, but still more to go. So we talked about knowledge, mindset, belief, health. Those are sort of the things that I, when you were mentioning them to me, I sort of internally put them in a bucket of like, these are things that are specific to me. These are like introspective. This is about knowing myself, my health, my knowledge, belief, background. Now we've talked about a few that are some of the more top of mind type of things that we sort of know are there, but are we doing the right things to actually uh, avoid them, I guess maybe is the question. And that was taxes, uh, perpetual fees. And there's a, a third that I think that would fit into this same bucket 
would you mind sharing that second to last one uh, with, with the audience? <laughs> sure. Well, I like to say, I like to tell the story that, you know, when I was in high school, five bucks, that bought me a burger, fries, and a Coke, right? I got a full meal for $5. I might even have thrown in an ice cream cone. Yesterday, I went to Chick-fil-A and I spent $15 on a chicken sandwich, fries, and a drink. So that is an example of inflation. The cost of things, they're constantly increasing. And there's different categories, whether it's food or gas or healthcare, you know, the different areas of our life have different rates of inflation, but certainly the cost is increasing as time goes by. When I got my first car 25 years ago, I remember it was a dollar, it was like 97 cents per gallon to fill up my tank. Today, it's $4, you know? So we have to make sure that we're thinking about how inflation eats at our ability to grow our wealth, right? So $10,000 today is gonna buy me a whole lot less 25 years into the future. So we wanna understand that maybe we've saved whatever it is, a million dollars in our account today, but if we still have another 25, 30, 40 years to live, is that million gonna last the way that you think it might? Probably not. So you wanna understand the impact of inflation and how it can erode your wealth. Yeah, and I, and I suppose that could be a tricky one too. I know that it comes up in some of the work that we've been doing lately is helping practitioners work with investors to understand what their cash needs will be in the future. You know, mm -hmm. what, some yep. of the things that we talked about, like you said, health and this and that, but sort of an added complexity to that, that I don't, I wouldn't even think of really off the top of my head is I'm trying to calculate costs based on today. Right. How do I know what that's going to be, what I'm going to need? And if you don't take that into account, your goal is going to be way off, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And not just that, you know, these costs are going to continue to go up, but your incomes don't necessarily keep up. They don't necessarily increase at the same rate. Mm -hmm. So you really have to be mindful because cash flow is king, as we say, right? So you really need to be mindful of how much cash flow do I have and will I have? at that time. So it's really about managing spending and even putting a structure in place, which I do with my clients. I help them put a structure in place that helps us to really automate and, and improve and accelerate you know, their cash flow and savings so that we can make sure that what we're hoping to have available to spend you know, monthly or annually in the future is going to be there. Great. So that's five of the six. And again, the way that I'm grouping them, this is just totally me and the way that I conceptualized it. But the last one I felt belonged in a group of its own. The first two, very introspective about the investor, knowing themselves as a foundation for everything that needs to be considered thereafter. You know, we talked about tax fees, inflation, things that need to be considered. But excited to talk about this last one. And we're going to do that after the break. We're going to take a, a short break. But when we do, uh, Leslie's going to share with us the sixth and final wealth destroyer that, again, that I, I believe fits in a, in a category in and of itself from the others. So stick around. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Dalbar. Dalbar is the nation's leading financial services market research firm and is committed to raising the standards of excellence in financial services. For more podcast episodes, visit financelab.dalbar.com. And now back to the episode. 
Welcome back. We're here with Leslie Batson, and we're talking about six wealth destroyers and most importantly, how to avoid them. So far, we've covered five out of the six. There were knowledge, mindset, belief, as well as health. We talked also about taxes, perpetual fees, and inflation. And we have one last wealth destroyer, which I think is a particularly interesting one to talk about because maybe unlike taxes or fees or inflation, this is probably not something on the average investor's radar. So Leslie, welcome back. Could you take the audience through this final and, and very important wealth destroyer? Sure. So the sixth wealth destroyer that I like to discuss is opportunity cost. So sometimes people don't know what I mean by that, <laughs> but there are different examples of that. So one example that many people can kind of relate to is a 15-year mortgage versus a 30-year mortgage, right? As an example. So typically a 15-year mortgage will have a slightly lower rate and obviously it's half the time. So we understand that if you were to have a mortgage for 30 years, you would end up paying more interest over that time period than you would versus a 15-year mortgage. But yes, and so obviously you would pay off a 15-year mortgage sooner. But the opportunity cost of a 15-year mortgage may be that your payments are going to be higher. So therefore, that meant that was money that was getting paid back to the bank that you didn't get an opportunity to grow for yourself. So what is the opportunity cost to that, right? That's just an example of thinking, okay, does it make more sense to do a 15-year mortgage or a 30-year mortgage? What does it cost me to do either one, right? That's just, I guess, a quick example of opportunity cost. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it probably goes against some folks' first instinct to say, no, I want to get rid of the debt as soon as possible. Like it has Absolutely. to be, you know, but yeah, it's a little, a little bit more complex than just that. I mean, there could be a psychological advantage to that, but economically may not be the best decision. Absolutely. What if we could work out a strategy, which I do with my clients that, you know, you get the 30 year mortgage based on an amount that you could afford, you know, at a 15 year mortgage amount. Yeah. By the time we get to year 15, of that 30-year mortgage, because of what we've done with that money, you could actually still be able to pay it off in 15 years, but you didn't have to have that higher mortgage payment. You know, you, you were able to just do other things with that money. So you're able to take advantage of having, keeping more money in your pocket that you could grow and still being able to pay it off in, you know, far less than 30 years. Interesting. And what are some other examples? I know that it can kind of present itself in a, in a lot of different forms. Do you have any other examples of how opportunity cost comes into the equation with, with investors? Well, similar to this is the paying 20% down on a, for a mortgage versus, you know, 3% or a minimum, right? Maybe 5% for conventional. So it's the same type of thing, right? You can put down a larger amount you know, of your down payment and have a smaller amount that you're financing, but now you've also given up a whole lot of money that you could have been able to, you know, invest or do other things with over the time. If you say put down 5%, well, yes, now you're going to have PMI. So there's going to be some additional cost there. That's where we go. Again, when we look at the fees. What's the value that you're getting, you know, for that cost? Maybe 
it makes sense to, because you're going to have a higher payment, right? You're going to have a higher monthly payment if you pay less down, but you're probably going to be able to do a lot more with the money that you didn't bother to put down. So again, it's one of those things where you just look at what is the cost of doing option A versus option B, right? And what makes sense for you and everything that you, your holistic situation, what's the best decision for you? Mm-hmm. How to maximize uh, that, that opportunity with the money that you're not paying in the mortgage. How can you maximize that opportunity with that, that savings? And of course, when we're talking, especially with the interest rates where they are now, that's going to be a much more difficult equation for most home buyers, at least. Yeah. And it also, if the priority is about cash flow, maximizing your cash flow so that you have the most control and the most liquidity to do, you know, the different things you want to do, we just have to look at, we look at the opportunity cost of different strategies. Mm-hmm. And, and and more choice, of course, you know, so, you know, if you have $300 a month less that can be invested, that it's not going into a mortgage payment, different decisions can be made about what you do with that money. You don't have to make a decision on day one, you know, but when it's part of the mortgage payment, you know, that's, that's a decision that's sort of set in stone. I mean, unless you're refinancing or doing something like that, but that's where that money's going for the next 30 years. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no, there's no changing it up. If you wanted to go from an equity investment to a bond investment or whatever, with that 300, you would have that opportunity to do that when it's tied up in the mortgage. So I wanted to now sort of take it from the abstract and maybe if we could play through a hypothetical example or something of the like. I'm, I'm just curious, you know, that we've, we've talked about these things. Some of the destroyers, I think, are would be on our short list of what we would expect. I think at least three of them are oh, wow, that made me go, hmm. (laughs) But how do we kind of put this together? And what does it look like for an average investor? How does it apply to a typical investor situation? Sure. Well, I think one way to illustrate how these six factors could, you know, impact someone's finances over time is when you look at, say, a 401k or retirement plan, say a 401k for, you know, average employee. Okay, so let's start with So knowledge, mindset, belief. Number one, oftentimes today, well, more and more companies are just automatically enrolling people into their 401k. So they don't even realize that they're, you know, participating in it because they're now being auto-enrolled. So that's one thing. But once they are, a lot of people kind of set it and forget it. They don't always understand it. It might be, you know, they come to see a financial professional like myself, you know, years down the road. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I've been contributing. They, They don't look at their statements, right? They don't really know much about it. So there's kind of a lack of understanding about what funds that their money's been invested in. So they definitely need to understand that. From a health perspective, this may or may not come into play, but if for some reason they do have some kind of health event and their income gets interrupted, that's definitely going to impact their ability to be able to contribute to a retirement account. But from the other four pieces that we've been talking about, from a tax perspective, one of the things that I think is always surprising to me <laughs> is that people don't understand how your money is taxed inside of a 401k because it is sort of touted as like the holy grail of retirement <laughs> in America. People just think, okay, as long as I have a 401k, I'm good. But they don't always understand that if you're making pre-tax contributions, you're deferring or delaying those tax payments today but that money is still going into that bucket and it's growing along with the investments and everything else. So the amount of dollars that you'd pay in taxes, you know, if you just paid the tax each year, 
is going to be significantly more when you get to your 60s or 70s or 80s, whenever you start to access those funds. So people don't always realize that you're actually creating a compounding tax bill inside of the 401k if you're doing pre-tax contributions. It's obviously different if you're doing a Roth 401k. So you want to make sure that if this is what you're doing, make sure you understand how it's impacting the money that you think will be there in the future. When we talk about inflation, you know, like I mentioned, a million dollars today is going to buy you way more today than it will 25 years from now. So if your statement is showing a million dollars 25 years from now, but now taxes need to be taken out from it. And oh yeah, by the way, there were fees that were being taken out from it over the decades. It has eroded what you actually would have inside of your, your account. So a 401k is just one of those accounts that everyone's sort of familiar with and they just need to understand, you know, what are the fees inside of my 401k plan? If you work at a large company, your fees are going to probably be lower, but it's still going to be some kind of perpetual annual fee. And you want to understand what, how much that's eating away at your, your balance. You want to understand the taxes. If you're doing pre-tax contributions, you want to know, again, from a cash flow perspective that you want to have available for you in the future, is this account enough for your long-term finances? Should you tack on some other tools, you know, in the toolbox so that you're not only relying on a 401k for longevity? That's just one example where you can kind of look at the six different pieces and see how it could impact like an average investor. That's a good example because, you know, what I said, and I know that the sort of the something that's unique, I suppose, to, to to your firm or what you said yourself that it's for, or I guess I, I said it in introducing it, is that it's for independent thinkers. I think that's a good example because, as you said, the 401k, I guess most people would say, well, that's a no-brainer. You know, that, that's the mm-hmm. holy grail. Everyone has to have a 401k. You should max out your 401k. And that's probably true for a lot of people. I mean, not that it isn't, but it's not true for everybody. And so, you know, it really does require being an independent thinker and to not have a herd mentality to actually look at these things, which are generally accepted as as no brainers and say, no, I'm not, it's not a no brainer. Like I need to think about how this fits in, into my situation. And maybe it does or maybe it doesn't just as any other product. But I think that that example is a good one in illustrating how important it is to be an independent thinker and, and not to take a herd mentality when making very personal investment decisions. Yep, absolutely. We're just about out of time. Leslie, I wanted to give you the floor for at the end, if there's anything that you'd like to add for the listeners before we go. Well, I have a coaching program if people are interested in learning more about these different elements and helping you to better understand how money really works. You can go to my website, rebelrockwealth.com and get information there. You can schedule a free 15 minute call and we can chat and I can see how I might be able to help you, whether it's from education or implementation. Great. Yeah. And for the listeners, check out the actual podcast page because there'll be backlinks to Leslie's website and other important supplemental materials that you might find there on that page. So go to financelab.dalbar.com and you'll see links from Leslie that relate to the show as as well as show notes and, and other important supplemental materials. Leslie, thank you so much for joining us today. I had a great time chatting with you. Well, thank you, Corey, for having me on and being able to share some information with your audience. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you found this conversation valuable, please visit financelab.dalbar.com to connect with today's guest. We'll see you on our next episode of Finance Lab.